something outside. What is that? to Monster X Radio. This is Gunnar Monson. Along with me today is my good friend and co-host of Monster X Radio, Julie Wrench. Julie, how are things over in your neck of the woods? Hey, Gunnar. It's going really good over here. We uh, It's been raining here all day long, but that's what happens when you have spring in the south, and I, I'll take this over snow any day. Yeah, we had actually a thunderstorm roll through here a while ago and lasted all of about 10 minutes, but we had some unusually large size hail for Oregon. So we're, you know, we're getting ready, gearing up for squatching season and uh, hopefully the weather, we've had a really mild winter here. So hopefully the, the weather will turn um, more mild, you know, and conducive to getting out and, and spending some time in the woods. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Absolutely. Um, we've been doing that uh, pretty much at least a couple times a, a week. Um, Jeff and I, we live right on the edge of the Uari Forest in North Carolina, and it has the most uh, documented eyewitness encounters in the whole state. So, you know, our background is, or our backyard is pretty much the playground of these alleged creatures. Um, so, you know, we moved here about a year ago. This is where I'm originally from. And I lived in Ohio for quite some time, but then we moved. We bought a farm down here and moved in about a year ago, and we've been doing a lot of daytime investigations over there, you know, reconning everything and getting used to the terrain in the area. Um, so we decided we'd bring Jeff on today. Um to discuss observation and surveillance military style. Uh, Jeff is my life partner 17 years and also my investigative partner, obviously. Uh, I'd like to welcome Jeff Stapleton to the show. Welcome, Jeff. Well, thank you. I appreciate you guys uh, having me back. Yes. Well, we're excited to have you back. We had said we wanted to get, get you back on, so now's a good time to do that. Uh, Jeff, for some people who may not know, could you just briefly tell us about your military experience? Yeah, I served in the United States Army for uh, 25 years. Uh, I was both a sapper and a combat engineer, and most of my career I was infantry. Uh, I am a graduate from the United States Army uh, Ranger School, and uh, that's my area of expertise. Mm -hmm. And you're a retired uh, Sergeant Major, correct? Oh yeah, retired, good old retired grumpy command sergeant major. <laughs> hey, you said it, not me. Okay, so you know you should be able to bring a lot of 
insight into, you know, the, the surveillance of your surroundings. Um, so why don't you explain how it is that you can apply that to military science for observation and surveillance, the the whole investigating aspect? Yeah, um, since the last show, I've, I've been doing a lot of research and, and a lot of uh, studying as far as applying the military science to trying to find Bigfoot. Um, for those uh, people out there who are military or ex-military and more recent than me, I'm, I'm old school. I'm way back in the uh, 70s, so some of what I talk about and the techniques that I utilize today may be used. Uh, in today's military, but I would say most of them because of technology or not. I'm more of a get-into-the-dirt-and-a-boots-on-the-ground kind of guy. Um, what I did is the first step was I <clears throat> thought about Bigfoot and what type of creature it was and what type of habits that, that Bigfoot has, like its keen eyesight, its ability to see at night, uh, its sense of smell, its ability to be stealthy and hide and try to apply some military tactics to that. Okay. And um, I know that you you are aware that a lot of people, uh, when they camp and they'll sit by the campfire and they do that for three or four nights in a row and in the hopes that if there is any, um, you know, possible... Bigfoot out there that may come in to take a look and see what's going on into the campsite. Um, so, but you have a little bit of a different realm of of thinking on that. So, could you explain to us what what it is that you prefer? Yeah, my my approach is uh, to go and take it as like a military operation where you're going in to do. Uh, observation and surveillance on this, say, the enemy, so to speak, and um, nine-tenths of what I did in the military was done at night, and that's that's the absolute best time to try to capture something. And, you know, you could set up a base camp and have your campfire and all that stuff going on, but you have to reach out from that. I um, Just like when we do our day research and we go out and we make a bunch of noise and we're running around in the woods, you know, you want that to settle back down and you want to, be able to get in, and uh, once you leave your base camp, you want to be as as, as quiet as possible. So, Jeff, you okay. you are actually starting with the null hypothesis that that there actually isn't a Bigfoot, correct? Yes, absolutely. I don't believe in it, but uh, it, it it has my curiosity. And I, if there is something out there, I would like to be. Of course, everybody does, but I'd like to be the, a person that uh, absolutely finds it and has some concrete evidence, not. You know, fuzzy photos and if he's audio sounds and things like that. I'd like to actually get some concrete evidence, and I think that using the techniques that I, that I apply now may uh, prove fruitful. And that probably, yeah, the best uh, approach is to um, spend time out actually in the woods. Um, you know, I've often said that uh, Bigfoot will not be proven on Facebook. <laughs> no, it will not. <laughs> so, what I mean, so your mindset is is to go out into their environment it, at the time that you would expect that they're they're most active, and what, how if you ran into something that that you couldn't identify as as a known animal, 
and you're out in their environment at, at night in the dark, what would what would you do? I mean, what would be the process? My process would be to stay absolutely still as possible and try to get some recorded evidence uh, of the animal itself and uh, pay very close attention to what it's doing and, and to take field notes on that. Um, you know, I've seen people out there who say, you know, there's a Bigfoot, and then they go chasing after it. Well, I, I think that if you do that, you're just going to scare it away. You're not going to be able to observe it. So you hunker down, you're as quiet as possible, you blend in with the environment around you as far as camouflage goes, and just sit and wait. And what what uh, technology do you use in your observation? What would you use to document, and what would, what would constitute um, hard documentation, hard evidence of the existence of these things? Um, some of the tools that, that I take with me now, I have a, a military, what they call a starlight scope. It's a large scope that you can mount to a rifle, and it's pretty high resolution where I can look around and see things. I would like to get something that records in the future. We do have a uh, night vision optical that we use, but it's not quite as good. But uh, I would also have uh, recordings on at the same time. So you're you're observing through through a uh, a scope, um, and what what uh, process do you use for recording? The only thing that I can do right now is just use a, a handheld recorder. Um, mm-hmm. Like I said, this, the scope itself doesn't have a recorder on it. We do have a small one that does, but it doesn't reach out very far. It would have to be within probably 15, 10 or 15 meters of me in order to be able to do that with that. And I do have plans in the future to get that because uh, I think that's going to be a, a critical piece of equipment for me to be able to do that. Absolutely. I mean, that's I. First of all, I I think there needs to be more of the military mindset or of approach to Bigfoot research. You know, going out and and attempting to um, get in the area where we believe that we're having some kind of activity, and then um, like exercising the art of observation and surveillance, um, play, putting those things into play. Um, what would be your ultimate, um, you know, the, what, what would be the end game for you for, for Bigfoot research? I mean, it's interesting because you're coming from the perspective that you're, you're not going to find anything or you're, or that you're, you know, you're chasing some or looking for something that doesn't exist. And then you work backwards from there by collecting, right. actually collecting evidence and then, if you start at the point that that Bigfoot doesn't exist, then it seems like it'd be an easier thing to uh, rule out uh, things that people normally include as as evidence. Very you know very easily put it in the Bigfoot box. Right. Um, I'd have to think about that one for a minute. Um, yeah, my my end goal is 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 uh, to actually to find it. I and you know if I go back to where we leave the base camp and and you go out and you and you sit and you look and you watch. 
Here, here's what I do, and this is what, what I've done a couple of times with myself. I haven't taken Julie with me because um, I, I want to be out there alone to uh, observe and study a little bit, you know, not have anybody else with me. But uh, once you leave the base camp, it's it's like a military operation. It's total silence. It's move a little bit, stop and listen. Move a little bit, stop and listen. Set into the area where you want to observe at and be extremely quiet. Uh, turn your voice recorders on. Scan the area with your night vision and uh, and wait for that. Now, I just, I just don't go out to an area and just say, okay, this looks like a good spot. <clears throat> what we have done, Julie and I together, is we have uh, gotten topo maps and we have got all, collected all the data that we can collect from the Aurora on where the sightings are, and then we've correlated that data. And then we've looked at Google Maps, and we've looked at the area for things like water sources, food sources, uh, places that they could, you know, hide at, where we suspect that they could hide at, where they would be. And then we take the most probable location from that and work our way out from it. Mm-hmm. Well, and the thing is, um, you know, just to back up for a minute what Jeff was saying about if you hear something nearby and it sounds like it's rather large and it's walking, um, you know, you don't want to run towards it because it could just very well be a bear. It could be a feral hog. It could be an angry deer. <laughs> so, um, you know, it's important to to know your environment before you enter it. What type of wildlife is indigent to the area? Uh, what kind of sounds they make? You know, I, I always like to listen to known animals that are in my area on the Internet, the clips of the some of the unusual sounds they might make, um, and, you know, kind of go from there because there's a lot of owls that make some really weird sounds that, you know, you, you if you've never heard it before, you're like, what in the world is that? Um, there's bobcats that now they can scream like like a woman and, it, and it's just creepy as all get out when you're out there in the the woods um, but yeah the the correlation to the water source and food source i think is is the key along with your history of of um encounters um well, it's, yeah it's great because you're actually you don't just walk out into the woods and and I mean that's throwing a dart. You know, there's mm-hmm. preparation that that needs to take place if you're serious about collecting actual evidence. You know, if you're going out to to knock on a tree and and hope that something responds to you, that could happen. It, I mean, it's documented that that is a technique, and and you do sometimes get responses to that um, action or or making a vocalization, and something might respond to you obviously without uh, seeing what's responding you cannot any way shape or form say i bigfoot yelled back at me Um, right you can't validate that for sure right because we have no database of bigfoot uh vocalizations or um, or not or knocks correct so we hear those things are reported in association sometimes with bigfoot encounters however until you know until i see bigfoot open its mouth or, or whatever, or, or pick up a stick and hit a tree. Um, I, I have a hard time. I, I don't say Bigfoot did this. I've had a lot of weird vocalization things and some um, weird noises and 
being foaled in the woods and, you know, I, that I can't uh, explain by a known animal, but I don't know because I don't know every known animal's behavior. So um, mm-hmm. it yeah, would be, it's things that would be unusual. But, to those sounds, uh, otherwise you're going to make a determination that's not going to be true. Right. So it's best case scenario, even when we record things and we go through the process of vetting audio, it, it can be interesting and not attributed to a known animal if you go to the process of comparing it to like the Macaulay Library of, of Sounds, you, you and, and maybe Bigfoot Research, some of that is we're recording sounds of known animals that have never been documented before or categorized before. Could be that. Some of, I, I would think that probably in, in that is the case in some cases. Right, that's a good point. Yeah, there's a there's a lot of land out there, you know. The Rory's pretty vast too, you know, and there there could be uh, some animals out there that just haven't been discovered yet. And there, it's possible one of them is walking on two legs and runs in the six to, you know, eight nine feet tall range and <laughs> might be a hairy bipedal, you know. Right, that, that's, that's right. what the Very big researchers are looking for. So, so in your experience, being out in the woods. And talking about the vastness of like the areas like the Oari, you, what is your opinion about the possibility of of a large undiscovered primate being able to survive or be in that environment and not be you know something that we've already documented? Um, my personal opinion is that it is it is very highly probable. I mean, I've been in some areas that, you know, it takes you a couple hours to get into, and you're in the deep thick of areas that, as far as I know, I didn't see any signs of any human uh, traces out there. So I'm in areas that, uh, you know, nobody's walked in for maybe who knows how long. So, you know, it's very possible that something could live out there. And, and you know, as far as, the theories of the Bigfoot go, it's an animal, as far as what I've read, moves around a lot. So it's hard to pinpoint. Exactly. I, I talk about we're chasing a, a moving needle through the haystack and a very large haystack and a very small needle. Because I, yeah, absolutely. The idea that they're, um, if, if Bigfoot exists, then um, they – well, you say they don't sit in one location. First of all, even if you're in close proximity of them, you know, unless they walk out and make a mistake, they probably utilize the the natural animal defenses that we know exist in known animals, like standing still. Being still is a, you know, there's a lot of reports. In fact, I just recently was sent some pictures of what looks like something large and dark. Of course, it's not a, you know, the the glamour shot picture, but something large and dark that appears to be peeking behind it from behind a tree. Um, mm-hmm. Of course, every piece of evidence requires context and there's a story behind it, which I'm not at Liberty yet to share at this point, but um, the whole, there's a lot of stories where they seem to utilize their environment, such as trees that they don't expose themselves entirely back um, our co-host and good friend Shane Corson's encounter, that's a behavior. When he observed the Sasquatch, it was peeking behind from behind a tree. 
Um, and that that just makes sense that they are, you know, even though they're large and uh, they seem to be very stealthy uh, in their their environment, they kind of own that environment. And even as as well trained and with your particular set of skills, I mean that they they are better at being out in the woods than than us. Would you agree? Yo, I agree absolutely. They are the masters of their environment. And you know, you talk about the shadowing. Uh, there have been several times in being out there that that I think I see something, and I really have to focus on it to to eliminate it. Uh, you know, matrixing is is a human nature thing, and you think you see things that you don't sometimes. Right, and shadows and paradoia, you know, where we have a natural tendency to see faces and shapes inside of, you know, shadows and and such. Yes, you do. Well, I know one thing that we do, um, and, and they call those tree peekers, I believe, the ones that kind of hang back and peek their heads around the tree and look at you, which is extremely creepy. Um, what Jeff and I will do when we're doing our daytime recon, he'll walk in front and I'll walk behind him a little bit off to the side. And one of us is wearing the GoPro forwards and one of us is wearing the GoPro backwards on our heads. So that way we're recording both coming and going. And that's smart. Yeah, that's a smart technique. So part of yeah. it, and what, what's something you touched on is that there's, let's talk about the importance of, of actually going out and, and doing recon in the area that during the daytime that you intend to come back to and, and utilize your techniques at night. Uh, that's, that's very important. You have to get very familiar with the area that you're going to operate in. And Julia and I have discussed this several times. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, knowing the terrain that, that you're in there is, is very important. Getting to know the area very well so you can get in and out easily. Uh, being able to analyze the terrain and to the best of your ability come up with a hypothesis where you think they might be. Um, like you said, it's like finding a needle in a haystack. So the, the more you're in that area and the more familiar you are with that area, the more likely you are to be successful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've spent the last year basically reconning three separate areas that have the most um, reported you know, events taking place, and, you know, we'll we'll go over there and spend the day hiking, observing, you know, we take our topographical map and, you know, just kind of get an idea of where some areas are that they could actually settle down for the night at, or where they, they might, um, you know, choose to, you know, you look for the game trails that are off of the, the path, Maybe there's places around those game trails that they use to hide behind to can't you know ambush their prey. So we're always looking for you know like large rock formations beside a game trail, um, something natural they can use to hide behind. You know when when we find things like that, we just kind of go around it and look for any tracks or any kind of dis- disturbances or you know they even say that they would take large rocks to throw at their prey to stun it, well, you know, we look for stacks of rocks behind something very large that something can hide behind because, you know, you're you're looking for something that makes sense. Yeah, like a hunter would use a blind. Exactly. 
<clears throat> and the other, the other thing that I found very interesting here, here recently um, we had uh, stopped by the ranger sta- station, and we have a friend there, and uh, we were talking to that person, and that person was tell- giving us some really good tips, and, and they had had some personal experiences themselves, so I found that very interesting. So, <laughs> you know, not only doing the recons and stuff, but I think it's very important to get out into the community and, and reach out to people that have had some sort of uh, sighting or event happen to them and, and, and talk to them because, <clears throat> like this person, for instance, I mean, you know, a ranger, they know that area better than anybody does, so they can tell you where to go, what what to look for in that area, and, and what their experience is. And in one of the areas that we're working in right now, that's exactly what we've done. Right, and it, you know, this particular person we um, – we stopped in and visited, you know, several times, and we we build up a rapport with this person, knowing that at some point, hopefully, they would trust us enough to share the secrets that they know about over here, because you know they hear all kinds of stuff. And this person happens to live smack dab in the middle of the woods, you know, right in the URI. So they've heard all kinds of things, and they will not walk at night on their property without a weapon and their dog. That's how much they hear out there. Now, what what has their experience been that, that has brought them to that point where they they don't want to, you know, they don't feel comfortable walking on their own property? Of course, Bigfoot doesn't know property lines. but Right. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but, because uh, the sounds, the whistles, mm-hmm. the knocks, the roars, you know, the crashing through the the woods sound sound like an elephant throwing trees. Those kind of things is what they've experienced, and they do not want to see it. Yeah, they don't. And one of the other things that this person experiences was that they have a dog, and it would go to the door, and you know how on the center of the back of a dog the hair would stand up when there's something that's threatening them or, the, you know, Correct. In the, in the area and just growl and just, you know, like, not like it would be a deer or something like that, but something that would be more like predatory. Yeah, her, she said her dogs um, really can act like there's just, you know, the line of hair comes straight up on the back all the way to the tail, the growling, the backing up, so... They believe there's something going on out there, and they also have heard all the stories and the history of the place, and they don't want to see what it is. So, you know, it took us a while to, to build trust enough for them to tell us. Well, sure, and when you go on. into, a, and when you get into a new area, new area, and and this whole process, like you said, you've been there now now a year, um, and it, it isn't a quick process unless you just walk out and you know it's like being struck by lightning having a bigfoot encounters it's probably more likely that you'll be struck by lightning than having a bigfoot encounter i don't i haven't checked the statistics but yeah it'd be like uh, winning the lottery i would assume right while being struck by lightning but uh, yeah right (laughs) but there's that whole process of of uh becoming familiar with with a new area um even though you grew up you know in in the state did you julie did you grow up close to the area that you guys are now well i'm originally um from an area that's maybe 10 minutes south of the the southern border border of the uari 
Uh, my family moved here actually in 1765 and settled most of this area, including the Uari. And they did a lot of hunting over there. And, you know, I'd heard stories about the wild man of the Uari as I, when I was growing up, and it's always intrigued me, you know, that the hunters would... And um, so I, I kind of grew up knowing that there is a belief that they existed in other places besides Northwest. Because everybody, you know, assumes that uh, most of the stories came from there and, until about the last 20, 30 years when it became more of a um, known thing that they were in different states across America. So, you know, like I said, we we got here in 1765 and we're still here. I have a lot of family in the area. And um, so, you know, but I lived in Ohio for years and years and moved back here. So we're just kind of getting ourselves familiar with the, the territory. Um, we're in no hurry, you know, because we live just six miles from the border of the Uari Forest. So for us to go on to go there and investigate, you know, we get in the car and we're in our area in 20 minutes. So the, I, and like you say, this real research with a measured, cautious approach isn't something that, that happens, you know. Uh, there's a lot of glorified camping that goes on in in Bigfoot, what's considered Bigfoot research where people just go out and, and they're camping. And if something happens, you know, they go and knock on some trees and, and there's no real documentation of anything that happens other than anecdotal. Say, I, you know, when I, we were out last night, something happened. I knocked on a tree and something knocked back. Um, what is the importance in your research of, of documentation? I think documentation is everything, and I, I think that you, <clears throat> me being a skeptic, you know, I've, I've ruled out quite a few things. Uh, I'll give you an example. The other day we were out in the woods, and uh, we heard what we thought was knocks. <clears throat> we paid close attention to the area that it was coming from and, you know, kind of moved uh, toward that area slowly, and uh, it happened to be two trees knocking in the wind, and it sounded just like wood knocks. Yep. And if you recorded that on, say, you recorded on an audio, you would probably see that as it would match that known sound. Um, right. Again, yep. people go out and say, I heard a wood knock and and immediately attribute it to to Bigfoot. Um, this this process, of, I mean, I, I so appreciate the the approach of basically Bigfoot last because it's really easy to go out in the woods and something when you anticipate something happening and already associate it with Bigfoot before you enter the woods. I mean, you're, you're so skewed towards uh, confirmation bias that, that, uh, and, and that's, you can't be, it can't be overstated how important it is. If you are actually trying to document evidence, the burden is of proof of, uh, confirming the existence of a, a, a legendary creature is on the person trying to prove it. I mean, that we go out and we say, you know, people say, oh, I, I had a Bigfoot experience, and that is not going to prove that they exist. Jeff, for you, what is, do you believe it's going to take to confirm the existence of, if, if Bigfoot does exist, what's it going to take to prove it? 
for me personally, a couple of different things could could prove it for me. Now, you know, I, I talked a, a little bit earlier about being, you know, miles and miles away from any trails or any area that anyone would be in, and if I came up on some footprints, you know, that were out there, then it is more likely than not that that came from a creature and not a human being. I mean, who runs around in the middle of the woods barefooted, right? Right. With 15-inch. Yeah, with a huge foot. Right. And the other thing would be to, you know, to, to actually uh, capture some footage, some clear footage that's not skewed or blurry or obstructed that that would prove that there is something out there. That that would be the big evidence for me. Um, you know, some of the other things that they do, you know, gathering hair samples and things like that, <clears throat> that that's great, but that's like, like you said before, that's like finding a needle in a haystack, walking in the woods and finding a, a bunch of hair and being able to handle, you know, have it analyzed. I think the more likelihood is either seeing the creature itself or seeing concrete evidence that the creature does exist out there. Yeah, like a specimen. Right. Oh, a specimen would be awesome, but yeah, I'd I'd hate for that to happen by someone shooting it and killing it just to prove that it exists. I, you know, we definitely aren't into that aspect of it. Um, I mean, I'm a, a picture taker when it comes to hunting Bigfoot. I would I would never hurt it. Um, as far as finding any remains and stuff, that's another hard one to do because, you know, as well as I do, the animals of the forest pretty much uh, reclaim that. Yeah, and what mm-hmm. that's one of the first arguments that people that are skeptical or, or haven't even looked basically at the evidence, they'll ask you, well, how come we haven't found a body? And and we've talked about that. We talk about that fairly regularly, that that, that is not, they're underestimating the, the difficulty of the task. And you can relate it to known animals as what, you know, are obviously you don't, if we were, it was that easy, we'd be tripping over bear and and cougar and deer and elk and you know all manner of of known animals corpses and and remains all the time and and that is that doesn't happen because of the process that nature uses to reclaim um, biological matter you know it doesn't it doesn't like it just uh, a creature just first first of all if if bigfoot exists bigfoot doesn't walk out into the middle of the field and fall, just fall over dead probably they probably have a better health, you know, they, if they die from a heart attack, um, they're probably someplace that, that, uh, is more, uh, secluded than, than, uh, and, and then the process begins of, of nature reclaiming and, mm-hmm. and it happens so quickly that, uh, people don't understand. The other thing is that they there, it is possible that somebody has walked across the Bigfoot bone and I, I know that it wouldn't be my first inclination if I was not doing Bigfoot research to pick up every bone that I ever found in the woods. So, I mean, is it possible that somebody, sure. I mean, you trip across, you know, you could come across the, the rare um, elk skeleton. You come across the rare, even rarer, you know, you talk to people that spend their entire lives in the woods and ask them, first of all, if they've ever seen a cougar. And, and it's, you know, I've never met anybody that says, you know, I, I, yeah, I've seen, I see a cougar every time I go out. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a rare event, just like it is with, with a bear, you know, and 
I think we're talking about the least populous animal in the forest um, in their environment. And then you factor in um, intelligence. How smart are they that they have, uh, if they have an awareness, I mean, deer have an awareness that, that man is bad or dangerous to them. Um, how smart are these things? They seem to be smarter, smarter enough to avoid, you know, detection by man for the most part. Yeah, they seem to be extremely smart. And, you know, just hitting on what you just said about the carcasses and stuff, uh, you know, a lot of times when animals get sick, they'll go hide themselves somewhere to die, too. So it's not like, you know, they're just going to hang out somewhere and they'll die. They generally go somewhere where they think it's safe or, you know, they won't be found. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that, that is to protect themselves from predators. You know, they do right. that as a natural defense. So, yeah, that's – so So there's some other factors when you go out into the, the woods and you're doing Bigfoot research. You know, what, what are some, some precautions and, and planning that you, you do just for general safety and, and, you know, being smart about being out in the woods? Sure. Um, one of the things that we've ran across, Julie and I, is um, we'll see areas where there's private property in conjunction with the Aurora Forest and um, never trespass. I mean, stay off of people's property. You got you get you have to respect their property. And if it's something that you feel strongly enough about, go find out who owns it and go ask them permission to do animal research in that area. I wouldn't necessarily say I'm looking for big. <laughs> But, you know. <clears throat> oh, why not? <laughs> yeah. Why not tell yeah. them? Yeah. Um, and, and I think it's important to to know if you, if there's a way that you can, <clears throat> you know, check before you go in what may be private property and what isn't. Because <clears throat> sometimes, excuse me, sometimes you may walk over there and you you would you miss the sign. You know, depends on how good it's posted. We've done that. Yeah, and the next thing you know, you know, we're we're in the South. People shoot first and ask questions later. So when it comes to property, so, you know, yeah, you just got to be careful out there. Be smart about it. Um, Jeff, why don't you go ahead and tell us about the um, what you do to plan for in case there's an emergency. Someone falls down, breaks their ankle. <clears throat> Excuse me. Yeah, you always have to have an emergency plan, and uh, you know, prior to going out, if if you're going out as a team, you need to uh, to do a safety briefing. I mean, it's just to remind people and to refresh them on being, you know, cautious in the woods because you know, there's <clears throat> it's hard to evac someone from the woods. Um, have an emergency uh, uh, first aid kit with you. Make sure that everybody understands the do's and the don'ts in the woods, you know, like running after something and pitch black and ended up hurting yourself or panicking. Never do that. Um, <clears throat> it's always good to have, you know, a basic first aid knowledge for field expedient first aid to help someone out. Uh, a cell phone is a necessity. However, um, sometimes you don't get a signal. Uh, ha- have an evacuation plan, you know. You're in this area. What's the quickest way to get to a route that's going to get you out of there as quickly as possible to to get this person to help, or if you can't move the person to get back to an area where you can link up with some emergency services to uh, to help that person out. Right, and that that also reminds me about the um, 
they do have uh, what they call um, mesh. Where it's like the Gotenna's. Um, it's a mesh networking device that you just wear on your person, and you can send messages. Uh, it's a, it shows your GPS location, local tethering, all without Wi-Fi cell or, or satellite signals. Um, you know, Gotenna.com, they have them on there, two of them for 100, like 180 bucks with a discount for military people. So Jeff and I have been looking at those, and, um, you know, because those would be a little bit, They'd be a little bit nicer than uh, being lost in the middle of the woods and trying to depend on your phone to catch a signal, you know, to try to get your GPS coordinates. So, you know, just recommend people check into that. I think Shelly has, Shelly Covington, Montana has something similar to that, and I think uh, she really enjoys hers. It's Gotenna. And they also have uh, Topo Maps available, too. Mhm. On that, on that, and we we were thinking about doing that, um, but luckily for us, in our particular areas in the Uari, they have over the several years really been good about installing towers out there. You know, mm-hmm. so if we lose signal, it's it's not for long. Cause but then, as we move on, it we can pick it back up. Yeah, we've been pretty fortunate in that respect. But then when you get into some places like out in the Pacific Northwest, not so much, you know. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> and they do have we devices have there that are like emergency beacons. They're, however, they are not cheap. So, you know, it's just, you know, whatever you feel comfortable with. So for night investigations, what are some techniques that, that investigators can use to help blend themselves or or make themselves less uh, detectable in the woods? I'll tell you, <clears throat> excuse me, a technique that I use is I like to uh, set up against a tree and then take the natural foliage that's around me and cover myself with it as much as possible without obstructing my view. Uh, that, that's a very good technique. And uh, if, you're laying, if you're up on high ground, you know, around the rocks like Julie was talking about too, you can actually just, you know, lay on the ground and, and, and blend in that way too. Now, your clothes are important at night, too. You don't want to wear real light clothes. You want to wear dark clothes that that blend in with the night. Right. And also, um, one thing that Jeff, uh, if we do any nighttime investigating, it's always, well, now you have to the sh- take the shower with the nonsense soap, and you got to wash your clothes with the nonsense soap. <laughs> And you end up taking your clothes that you wash with the nonsense soap and and actually putting them in large Ziploc baggies. You take that over with you where you're going, and before you enter into the area, you change. So that's how serious Jeff is about this. Yeah, it's kind of some sense. hunter's techniques there. Yeah, and, and the nonsense spray, you know, you can use that on, on certain things. Some of your equipment, depending on what it is, you know, you don't want to spray something that's going to damage your equipment. But, you know, you can use that on on certain devices. But, you know, if somebody's really serious about their scent issue, you know, there's a couple things you can do to to lower. Because we don't know how, what kind of sense of smell these creatures have. But I would assume, you know, knowing known animals 
have a, a more acute sense of smell than humans, and you know that's because they they live in the woods and they they have to eat. They you know if they're a predator, they're looking for prey. If they're prey, they're looking for the predator. So I'm sure their sense of smell is a lot more keen. Oh, it would have to be than ours. Well, a lot of our natural ability, survival abilities have been muted because of the environment we mostly now live in. So my good friend Larry Turner talks about the process of going out into the woods and, you know, regrounding. I mean, getting your senses back in, in raising them back up to, you know, I'm sure it's not, not uh, pre-living in, in uh, the city, in, but still there's a, a process of being making yourself aware that of smelling and and uh, sight and and listening to things that that uh, because we are so bombarded our senses are so bombarded by you know civilization civilized life from tone you know facebook dings on your phone and yeah. and uh and you know just everything and so it's a process of going when you go go back into the woods and in that environment to, to get your, uh, reorientate yourself to that environment. You're, you're absolutely right, Gunnar. Um, matter of fact, that's one of the things that Julie and I do when we first go into the woods, we'll go in a little ways and then we'll just set and relax and get focused on what we're doing and get all that mumbo jumbo out of our mind, like you're talking about and, uh, get back to nature. One of the things they they talk about with is game cams, and you know there's this. I, I think the easy excuse is that Bigfoot has some psych, psychic ability to detect game cams, which it seems like you know it's a, a far stretch to me, and isn't this an unnecessary uh, explanation? Because if you you look at uh, game cam photos, you'll see animals, known animals, that don't have any. Um, paranormal abilities know that game cams are there um, from uh-huh. human scent. We don't know, you know, the, the kind of sounds that they put off. Uh, they'll come right up to the cameras, lick them. Um, in uh-huh. our trip up um, north, when we did Operation Sea Monkey, we had deployed a game cam on on the beach or at the edge of the wood off, off of this the beach and uh, and then came back the next day. Well, on the game cam, there was actually um, a, a mama grizzly came out and, and was in full view of the game cam and then all of a sudden you see that the cam- camera's shaking and well when we found the camera the, the strap that w- was tied to the tree was was had been chewed through so there was a second grizzly there gnawing on the camera so obviously they knew that they were there and they didn't need any special abilities other than what their natural abilities are to um, find them and and be curious about them and chew on them. Right. I'm a, I would say probably the scent of the of the humans that were utilizing the camera and also maybe there may be a, a frequency level that those cameras admit that that we can't hear. Yeah, and yeah, I and absolutely. I think that using them in your investigations is is a good thing, you know, because you just never know. So we will take ours with us. And wherever we're going to hunker down, that's where we're going to put it, you know, not far from there. So it's it's worth a shot, you know. There's How many game cams are out there, and there's not been one clear picture of a Bigfoot yet. But that's, you know, I think it's more because 
they they can maybe smell it or maybe hear something. Or it could just be because these things are so rare, it's not like they're just walking past your game cam, you know, every day. Yep, needle in a haystack thing. Yeah, we've recently invested some money into some cameras, and <clears throat> we just recently got a really nice 1080p that uh, is triggered by sound and records and also does uh, pictures all at the same time. So we went out in the field and tested that, and we're real happy with it, and I've just purchased another one. Awesome. Well, that, and that you think about it, people you know, talk about that, again, they underestimate the, the difficulty of, of the task is you put a, a game camera out there and it covers, you know, this, this field of view. Right. And it's such a, if you took all yep. the game cameras that are, are out in all the woods and you, you took that as a percentage of the woods that are actually covered by game cam, it'd be so infinitesimal that, mm-hmm. it, you know, it's, again, you you know, you we do get bears, we do get cougars, you you get you know all the natural wildlife um, rarely, um, and and even the a uh, outfit like the Bluff Creek Project that is has a bunch of them out there um, hasn't gotten anything that that is remotely Bigfoot. Um, they have gotten bears. They and they they actually got what was it, Julie, that they captured on their game cam that proved the that Humboldt. they were there. That, that Martin, that very rare Martin, they did right. Got up on their cam, so they you know, if nothing else, you're helping the the local wildlife um, center to determine you know that there's some something you thought was extinct or almost extinct shows up then you know you're you're helping along science so it certainly doesn't to hurt to utilize those things and occasionally there have been some interesting um game cam pictures of you know that and obviously not any uh definitive anything definitive but you have uh, there's one on um from the Oregon Mount Hood National Forest that uh is on Cliff Berrickman's uh, CD or excuse me, DVD. And, you know, he, he went to the site and, and did some measurements and it seems to fall outside of, of human range. So what is it? What can't tell by looking at the, the photo because it's blurry um, and, and you don't have any, you know, defined features on it, but that's what happens when something's running past the game cam. Right. Uh, we haven't had the, um, the opportunity yet for for Bigfoot a group of Bigfoot to come in and play cards, you know, in front of. <laughs> and, but it's the the frustrating thing is folks that are out there that that are um, putting things forward without doing due diligence. You know, it's it it makes the entire field of of Bigfoot research look kind of silly a lot when. Um, when people come from the perspective of Bigfoot first, as opposed to what you guys are doing as is uh, Bigfoot last, you know, that, that is the way it's going to have to get done. It's a slower process. I think if people get in a hurry with, you know, they want, they want an answer. They want it now and they want it on Facebook if they can get it or, or a, a YouTube channel where mm-hmm. they can, uh, Every every sound and every um, movement, every shadow is is Bigfoot. It's frustrating. Yeah. To, oh yeah. Because that's yeah that's not how it gets done. 
No, man, you know, just to, for our historical archives, <clears throat> you know, things that I've tried that work, things that I've tried that don't work, I, you know, anything you can get out there in the field that observes is, is what I call a multiplier. And, you know, the, the uh, game cams would be one of those things because, I mean, you just never know, you know. Right. Yeah, it's another set of eyes out there in an area that that you that you can't see. So, and and it's part of the documentation. Maybe, you know, maybe you get lucky. You know, you put a game cam out there yeah. at night. It still has has the the challenge of being out at night and getting something. It shortens the the field of view, and something basically has to you know be really close in and yeah, in front of it, and not you know you could you could capture audio of something with a game cam that that you may not even get on video. And, and that's what we did with our camera when we tested it. It triggered several times and it was just coyotes off in the distance or a dog barking and so, you know, it's good to have that audio on your game cam because it might be something making a sound or, you know, vocalization and it may not be on there visually, but you can always analyze that audio. Um, one thing I wanted to get in, because we're, we're drawing close to the end here, is uh, where we live now out in the, the country, you know, we're very close to the Uari. There's been sightings actually around this particular area and just north of us and just south of us. And uh, here recently, I was do I, I record the coyotes sometimes out here when I'm by the fire pit and I'll record them because, you know, some, sometimes they get pretty loud and pretty close. And one night I was recording them and at the very tail end of it, I heard something that I'd heard before, but it didn't sound like a canine to me. So I thought, you know what, I'm going to send this off to David Ellis, um, which I did. And he, he did put it on the spectrogram and what it is, it, it doesn't match any of the known canine sounds that you would think, you know, like a wolf, or, or not wolf, dogs, um, coyotes, <clears throat> maybe in coy wolf, depending on where you're at, you know, in North Carolina. And it came back as it matched the same unknown sound that he had been sent from two other states. So there's whatever made the sound, it's in at least two other states making the same sounds <laughs> that doesn't match other known sounds. So that's from my backyard. And that, yeah, that's interesting. Go ahead, Jeff. Uh, so say we were pretty excited to get that. So as a, a skeptic, when you hear some, hear that and it comes back as that, what, what is your response to that? What do you think about that? It, it kind of affirms that there may be something out there. There may be something in the database that we haven't recorded yet, but it's not in the database that we we don't know about. But it definitely piques my interest when a spectrogram is done on it and the audio analysis comes back that it's not any known mammal that uh, we have in any database. Mm-hmm. And always vet your evidence before presenting it publicly. Oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah. Thank you, you know, Julie. <laughs> I mean, seriously, folks. And vetting means, you know, if you can get a, an, a spectrogram done on the audio, if you have something on a FLIR, do a reconstruction, have P 
people, your peers review it for you, you know, just do whatever you can to get it vetted and, and just don't assume that what you have is is a Sasquatch on your floor because you you need to be able to rule things out. If it's not if it's not um you know if you if it's the same size that it could be a human being then you can't claim that it's it's probably a squatch. So you just have to just be mindful and, and try to, to vet your stuff. Yeah, documentation is everything and you know I know we're running on short on time so I'll just hit on this real quick but uh, you know after you get done with your investigation you when you get back to your base camp or wherever you're gonna go um, it, it's good to immediately sit down with uh, with your team or your group and to review what you may have uh, heard or seen or smelled or whatever uh, fresh in your mind because if you do it later on you may miss some details and you know in the in that you know you want to know about the weather conditions the barometer the moon phase the time of year the temperature all that stuff because that may come into play as far as the movement of the creature mm-hmm. yes well that's absolutely true the more data points that you can or around a data point of the information that you can attach to that the more valuable it is to yeah the more you correlate to your you, research arrow down right and and if you have that information and and you know are willing and able to share it with other researchers that that does build on the 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 patterns looking for patterns and signs um much like uh, Squatcher Metrics does, he takes those mm-hmm. data points and and looks for for patterns and and information that that becomes valuable because that over time, if we share that information, we and we're doing a good job of of documentation, their patterns do arise, and it it makes that looking for the the moving needle in the enormous haystack just a, that much degrees easier. Well, Jeff, we're just about out of time, and I, I do want to thank you for, for uh, first, for your service for our country, but also for your approach to Bigfooting and for being willing to come and share that here on Monster X Radio. Thank you, my friend. Yes, thank you. Thank you, and it's, it's my honor. And, Julia, of course, it's always a pleasure to, to be on the air with you and, and chat about our favorite subject or one of our favorite subjects. Right. Folks, thank I, you. I do want to – I do want to – remind you that um, Monster Exclusive is now available. You can go to our website, www.monsterxradio.com, and you can click on Get Monster Exclusive to join our monthly membership, which has uh, all kinds of new content, four new shows. Um, with uh, We're doing all the time. There's an archive of stuff in there already. Um, so please come and, and join us if you're so inclined. I appreciate everybody for listening to us and uh, being part of the Monster X Radio audience. Again, I want to thank our guest today, Mr. Jeff Stapleton and my co-host, Julie Wrench. Um, and to all you Monster X listeners, I will talk to you next week with a brand new episode of Monster X Radio.
Monterey Radio. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.